At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Gentrification has serious and sometimes tragic consequences. In San Francisco, the Fillmore District is an area once known as the Harlem of the West for its vitality. The gentrified neighborhood is the setting for the film The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Its story addresses themes of race, identity, loss, and friendship. The Sundance Award-winning movie was an amazing debut effort from best friends and collaborators, actor Jimmy Fales and director Joe Talbot. They were in Atlanta ahead of the 2019 film premiere, and later this hour we'll listen back to that conversation. First, the new tomorrow. Throughout the pandemic, millions of Americans have turned to freelancing for added income. Two Atlanta entertainment entrepreneurs, Kayla Shelton and Don Cannon, created a new app in response to that need. The Tomorrow app allows freelance creatives to look for jobs in their area in an instant. Kayla Shelton and Don Cannon spoke about the new platform via Zoom with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Kayla began with how she first got into the music industry. I moved to Atlanta at 17 and I immediately kind of got in the music scene. Like a friend of mine heard me singing one day and was like, you should be recording. And I'm like, oh, I should. I knew I'd come down to school to to go into entertainment. I didn't know if it was going to be it was going to be something on television, journalism or something like that. But yeah, singing is a part of my um, family. So I started like recording demos. And I want to say like within like a month or two, I had my first development deal with Epic Records. I was with a group called Solid, which never saw the light of day because um, the group broke up. But being in that in that space, I was able to, I stayed in that space. I was able to continue working and got another record deal with Warner Brothers um, with a group called Bella. And we were slated to break our single with Rick Ross like years ago. And at that time, our group got shelved because our label said that 
they didn't have the right marketing for us. So our group got shelved. And because of that group, I was able to get a um, songwriting um, publishing contract with Warner Chapel Music. And so um, when that kind of happened with the group, I just continued on as a songwriter for several years until I went back into like design. So mine was, you know, pretty short and Don, take it away. Of course, I started music and around a childhood, early childhood thing. I first DJed my first gig at five years old, which sounds kind of crazy. I grew into a rapper producer all from 11 years old to 17. Came to Atlanta to a historical black college, Clark Atlanta University, and which I started DJing parties out here in Atlanta for the likes of Shaq, Puff Daddy. I did a Whitney Houston birthday party. I just became, yeah, became really popular in Atlanta scene as one of the top DJs. I started traveling as a DJ. And then, you know, I incorporated uh, the production side back into my life when I was on the road, just, you know, uh, making beats and interacting with some of the artists, uh, have a partner. We started a mixtape uh, coalition called the Affiliates Brand. And one of the things we were doing were breaking artists and talent such as T.I., Young Jeezy and Yo Gotti and, you know, any any rapper um, that was coming up in this era of the 2000 earlys and lates, uh, we pretty much uh, put our hands on helping their career uh, go to the next level. And, uh, you know, as we got into the 2010s early, uh, I took a job as VP of A&R at Def Jam Records for three years, which uh, we helped turn around a label and, you know, also you know, we had some great artists come out of that time when I was there. Uh, just to name a few, Big Sean, Iggy Azalea, Janae Aiko, YG, you know, just just a lot of a, a lot of great artists came from that. And, you know, as I moved forward into my next venture, I started my own record label called Generation Now. And it's partnered with Atlantic Records. Our first superstar off the off the label was Lil Uzi Vert. And uh, we grew into our next superstar, Jack Harlow, which was just on Saturday Night Live this past weekend. So, uh, you know, through my career as a creative, you know, I've done a a plenty, a lot of things. And, you know, I got I got with Kayla to come up with this important, you know, idea for creatives. And here we are. Yeah. And let's talk about this freelancing app tomorrow. How did the collaboration between both of you come about? Well, we met in 2005. I was at the time I was with Warner Brothers and we were at like a a video shoot for one of my label mates and um, our manager at the time wanted us to meet Don and his partners because we were about to put a a record on the radio. And so they were the top DJs at the time. And so it was like, okay, let's meet. And then that's how long ago we met and been together ever since. But I want to say 2018-ish, the top of 2018 is when I was taking a step back from designing and was like, hey, you know, I want to do something different. I want to I want to create something with an impact, something that's really useful for, you know, the community, my peers. And so I just took a step back. I started dabbling into production and things like that. Um, And then I had an aha moment where a friend of mine 
who's long time working in the industry uh, on different in film, she hadn't booked a, another project. And so she had started door dashing and she came to me. She was like, yeah, girl, it's been, it's been rough. I just started door dashing just to, you know, keep afloat, but you know, I haven't been able to book anything. And, and then that's when the moment was like, dang, like, why is there not like a door dash for creative freelancers so, so we can stay in our profession you know and that was really the spark I said that's what I'm gonna do and so I ran it by Don I'm like because he's a, a techie like he likes every every app every phone every computer every gadget he has he's reviewed it he's done everything so I'm like if I can run it by him and he's likes it then we're going somewhere so he loved it he understood it us both being creative freelancers technically for, you know, 15 plus years, it just made sense. And so we like put our heads together and started building it. That's awesome. So you had two sides, the creative, the idea person, which was you, and then the technical guru that can make it happen. And here we have tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> the name of the app tomorrow is spelled capital T lowercase M R and capital O. Why did you guys decide to spell it that way? Yeah, um, the name is also one of those like true to heart stories where um, we had another name and we were um, looking, we were going out to get a trademark for it and we saw so many other um, companies with it. And so we were like, dang, we have to scratch it. So I was like talking to a friend at the time. She was working with me. She's kind of like a branding person and we were just going back, going back and forth. And I'm like, you know what? We need a, we need a new name by like tomorrow. And that's where the name came from. It's like, wow, this is the urgency of what we're dealing with now. And what a lot of clients and creatives are dealing with. They need, they need someone by tomorrow. They need to get paid by tomorrow. Like everything is tomorrow. And so um, that's where the name came from. And it just felt right. And we were like, yeah, this is it. And with the spelling, it was kind of just like, what are the top brands that you think of? You know, Nike, Uber, like words that are four letters, things that are short and to the point. And um, we just were playing around with um, the spelling and we were just like T-M-R-O. We're like, yeah, tomorrow. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Another one of those things I was like, Don, what do you think? What do you think? And he was like, Yeah. Yeah, I was like, no, I was like, that's it. That's what I heard. That's oh, it. okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. Now, it rolls off the tongue. It's yeah. memorable, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> How would you say tomorrow differs from that of other freelancing apps, such as Fiverr and Freelancer.com? Yes. Okay, well, one thing about tomorrow is that, like we said, quick payment is a priority. Um, we pay our freelancers within 48 hours of completing a project and no other platform is doing that the gig or freelance platforms there it's usually about seven to 14 days and if you're outside of a platform and just trying to get paid as a creative it's 30 to 90 days so that's one of the main things that we that is a priority to us that we focus on that makes us different from you know fiber and freelancer or any other of the platforms secondly we offer in-person creative services um, as well as digital and remote services. So when you're going to Fiverr, Fiverr is all digital. It's all, you know, remote work. Um, it's all, you know, 
something that can be sent via email. And there's just not a place for, you know, people that for creatives that actually have to show up on set that actually have to mix and mingle or, you know, just work alongside a team um, in an in-person kind of way. So um, we just, with, with that offering, we're able to match just like a broader um, customer needs with that. And what we're launching very soon, a feature that we're launching very soon is Instant Book. And Instant Book gives you the capability of booking a creative based on their current availability, their proximity to the client or project, and their drive time. So often in this creative space, you know, there's last minute things that come up or someone doesn't show up or someone doesn't do a good job or someone walks off set and you really need to find someone last minute. Or if you're traveling, if you're traveling for a project and this is not your hometown and you don't know who to reach out to and you and you need some people to come, the um, instant book feature allows you to discover and book and pay someone like as easily as you would at Uber. So I, I say it's just easy like Uber. Okay. Don, can you walk us through this app first from the point of view of someone that's looking for a freelance gig versus someone who's looking to hire a freelancer? So in the Tomorrow app, you can what, what you can do is you can set up a profile as a creative. You can, you can also set up a profile as a talent seeker. And you go on the app, you set up a profile, you display a lot of your portfolio products, maybe, you know, just say I'm a graphic designer for instance, display a portfolio of those things, tell a little bio by myself, add a picture and just set up and just, and, you know, just have something for people to explore, you know, and, you know, as I'm set up as a talent seeker, which I'm always looking for, you know, new visionary creatives, I will set up a profile as a talent seeker, uh, a bio, what I've worked on, what I've done, and a list of, you know, different jobs that I'm actually putting out there to hire creatives for. So like, as of right now, for example, I have a job seeking people to help me create new logos for some brands that I have, you know, and then I have another job also is to reinvent some of the merch lines I have for some artists. So I just add some jobs in there just to, you know, get some creatives flowing to me because I have a hard time just continuously having one platform to find everybody. I don't want to have to keep going everywhere to do it. So that's pretty much like the flow of things. It's really, really simple, you know? Right. It's um, all in one place. Yeah. And, that, and you know, the, yeah, I mean, and the payments and all those details, that's, you know, that comes with just, you know, setting up. But, you know, the importance of it is just setting up the profile. It's really, really easy, super easy. And it looks great. Setting up the profile, setting up the listing your projects. And then as soon as you, like he was saying, jobs, we call them projects in the app. But as soon as you post a project, it goes right to the um, the marketplace, the homepage. And anyone that fits into those categories, they're notified, hey, there's a new project in your area. You might want to apply or, you know, they'll find it, you know, right in there. So when you're setting up a project, it's really just you, you describe the project, you um, add any reference images to the project, you select what kind of creative, we have several categories, what kind of creative you're looking for, the number of creatives that you're looking for, the budget you have, and then, yeah, once you click submit, then everyone's notified. Okay. 
And how does a freelancer become a verified creative? Verified basically means background checked. So if you proceed and do a background check, then you will be considered a verified user. What I thought was really cool was there's no monthly membership fees. It's free to connect. How are you guys able to continually provide this service to freelancers with no fees? It's free to join. It's free to download. It's free to start. Right now, we take a a 5% commission on each project transaction. So that is how we make money. That's how we're able to continue to keep the lights on. One small commission from each transaction. And in the future, we plan to add more um, resources to help creatives provide more structure. Or even if a client needs, you know, say, hey, this is what I need you to do take it all on for me, find me the whole team. And that would probably look like a membership that would, you know, cost um, a little more. But right now we just take our, you know, 5% on the back end. And um, because we, we wanted to make sure that we were different. We wanted to make sure that we weren't hitting the, you know, the creative's pockets really hard, like, you know, some other platforms do. Nowadays, most people have a second job or a side hustle. Uh, In preparation for this interview, I decided to do my own survey on Instagram, asking my followers if they had a second job. And out of 72 that responded, 32 voted yes. How can the Tomorrow app be beneficial to those who are already working a full-time job? Shoot, I mean, I think I thought everyone had like a little side hustle, but yeah, that sounds like a good representation. Yeah, well, it's really just so seamless and streamlined, the the whole process. It's not something that you have to go out and create a new, a whole website or a whole online shop, you know, and pay for that and pay for marketing. It's all within our platform. So it's as simple as just signing up, creating a, a profile with some video and images, writing a little bit about yourself, setting your rates. And you'll just get notifications when there's opportunities in your area, or you can just, you know, if you have some downtime, you can review the marketplace and and start applying for jobs. It's really, it's one of those things you work when you want to work. So you can manage a full-time job and start to scale your side hustle or your side job while using the Tomorrow app. And then hopefully, you know, with with the, the value that we can bring with the Tomorrow app, if you want to transition full, fully over to a freelancer, where we're seeing a lot of people are going to now, you'll be able to do that because we're providing that structure for you, that organization, that exposure for discovery, as well as just like your taxes. You know, at the end, you, we provide all the information for you to just claim, you know, what you've made through the app. So everything is really set up for you to not have to think so much and just be creative, you know? Yeah, that's just so user-friendly, very refreshing. And I'll say from the 32 that voted yes, like I didn't think, well, that was almost half. But I will say when I looked at the users, most of them were in the entertainment industry. So I felt like this just added to the fact that a Tomorrow app is needed. How would you both say the pandemic has influenced the rise in freelancing? I was just about to get into that. I was going to say, funny as it sounds and how crazy it is, is that we've seen more people take that big step into, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. I need to figure out how to give myself a chance to learn entrepreneurship and get into a field that I really want to get into because now I have time. And a lot of people are also, like you said, are looking for uh, those second opportunities that may flourish into something permanent. 
And, and that's what I'm starting to see just from my side of the street. A lot of, you know, creators had those side jobs or those full-time jobs. And in the past year and a half, I've gotten a lot of calls. People like, hey, man, I'm not even doing the side hustle. I'm fully doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> or, you know, I'm not, I'm not in that space no more. I'm going full-fledged into my dream. And I'm starting to see that, you know, leaf turn over day after day, month after month. I'm like, oh, snap, okay, cool. Now you have time, you know. But that's what I'm starting to see a lot of, you know. And, I, you know, I know Kayla's starting to see it a lot from her friends and people she's come in contact with, too. Yeah, it's kind of like the pandemic took the training wheels off of everyone's life. <laughs> and it was <laughs> like, figure out, you know, figure out what you're going to do. You can't rely on the, the old structure of the workforce, you know. Um, even, like, large companies, Fortune 500s, they're looking for, you know, freelance talent because they can't necessarily afford to, you know, provide the, the full-time benefits of employees and, and they want to diversify and they, and they want, you know, more flexibility in there. So it's just like one of those, it's, it's those times where it's like everyone can dig deep and find out, you know, what they're good at and actually make a living out of it and just learn. It's the time to learn how to do that. You don't have to be you know, an entrepreneur, so to speak. But I mean, as a freelancer, you kind of turn into an entrepreneur. And with apps like the Tomorrow app, you're able to guide yourself along that path. I mean, I know one, st- one of the crazy statistics is that in 2019, nearly $1 trillion was contributed to the U.S. economy through freelancers. And in 2020, it rose to $1.2 trillion. So it's it's growing and it's not going to turn back. I and mean, I think we all can agree uh, it's a new normal and it's probably going to be great for a lot of people because I know a lot of people that were, couldn't wait to not work their job. You know what I'm saying? So it's like a turning over a new leaf, like Don said. If either of you would have had an app like this when you started out in the entertainment business, what would it have meant for each of your careers? Ooh. It would have meant a lot for my career, <laughs> for real, because, you know, I, I can just pinpoint a time between 98 and 2003, even though I was legitimately going crazy in the club, right? Like, I was doing some, I was doing some big things, but there was times where I needed to get other things rolling. Like, I had so many, like, thoughts in my brain at that time, like, I was drawing at that time, you know, drawing, you know, characters. It was like coming up with my covers for my own mixtapes and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I would have loved to have done some for other people, but my outlet wasn't there at the time, you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, just helping people, you know, I, I wish I could also be seeking things where I was finding more people that could help me organize crates and and sounds and just, you know, somebody that was rolling with me every day. It was just things like that, that I would have been like, if we had an app then, that would have helped my career in the early, you know, the early 2000s. And, you know, you know, as we moved into later 2000s, just, you know, I'm very big on, again, on visionaries and starting media groups where entertainment lawyers and, you know, videographers and copywriters in those late 2000s, that would have been a tremendous help you know, for me, collecting all these, you know, different creatives and different people. So that's how I look at it in terms of earlier in a career, if there was there, would it have done for me? It would have changed everything for me. 
Yeah, I agree. It would have been a game changer. I mean, I would have been Beyonce. You know what I'm saying? Like, it would have taken me. It would have taken me so far ahead. Um, because I mean, even starting off as a songwriter or even a recording artist, you know, there was so much that the labels would do for you. But at times when you needed to express, like, you know, the label might put you in a box and say, "Okay, you are the next Destiny's Child," or "You're the next this," and it's like. I feel that like I love them, but no, let me let me show you, you know, what we really are. And if we could have found a videographer to shoot a quick like little video of us or if we had the resources to actually create our own vision that we could show to the label, maybe the maybe we could have advised the marketing team to say, okay, you guys don't have a plan. Here's our plan. You know what I'm saying? Like that would have been a game changer for us because we had all the ideas, but we didn't have the resources to actually show them who we really were. You know, it was their job to do it and they they weren't able to do it. So it would have been a game changer. And even then going into my entrepreneurship as like a clothing designer and, and, and running an online store, so many things I took, you know, years trying to develop, months trying to learn how to do this or that you know, if I had an app like this, it would have been a one-stop shop. It would have been like, okay, I have my videographer. I know he's good. I know my photographer. Now I have my models. I have, I could even have found, you know, um, a yeah, graphic designer to, to do some of my prints from my clothing. So, I mean, you can imagine how much it's changed and how the internet and technology has really advanced people. So it would have been a game changer. And so I'm so happy, like right now that it's like, we're able to tap in and, you know, as the world is shifting, we're like, we're providing a tool that's helping everyone adjust and like grow at the same time. Kayla Shelton and Don Cannon, co-creators of the Tomorrow app. They were speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Find out more information about the new platform on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the early 20th century, San Francisco's Fillmore District was a vibrant community for middle-class Black Americans. Since urban redevelopment in the 1950s and 60s, the African-American population of San Francisco has fallen by nearly half. Where do you go when your home is San Francisco? That question is at the heart of the Sundance award-winning film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. The movie was a debut effort of director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fails. The longtime friends joined me during their Atlanta visit to promote the film in 2019. Here's Joe Talbot telling us how they first met as kids. Well, there was a park that sort of lived right between our two houses, or where Jimmy lived, where I lived, uh, called Presida Park in San Francisco. Um, Sort of hugged the line of the Mission District in Bernal Heights. And it was a park where a lot of different kids would hang out, 
play sports, in my case, more run around with a camera. <laughs> so we would see each other around and, you know, s- sort of silently acknowledge each other. And then eventually Jimmy came over to my house. He was friends with my younger brother, Nat. And um, we had a conversation that went long into the night and kind of touched on, it felt like everything. And um, yeah, just a bunch of stuff. It, it went on for hours. And I think that was the the basis of the friendship we have now is the beginning and just kind of the basis for our friendship, which, you know, this is a lot of talking and being open with each other. How long ago was that when you It's met? all, man, it's just very blurry for us, I mean. Um, but <laughs> I, I would say ago, over yeah. 10 years for sure. Uh, some so of the, uh, You were teenagers. Yeah. Young teenagers. I was even younger than that. I feel like I was probably, it might have been like, 12, 13 years now that I think about it, I mean, but... Well, how long have you been talking with each other about making this film? Clearly, you had a lot to talk about at the very mm-hmm. beginning. I mean, we always have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, it was an idea that came from, again, talking, having a conversation. It came very informally and um, just sort of started to get developed once other people that just showed us a lot of support and you know we had other conversations with other people and told them about this sort of idea that kind of came and it's it's very blurry how it started to get developed but well basically no i mean we we shot a concept trailer that was the first thing we did you know um having never done this before on this level we had made movies together when we were younger and that concept trailer became a calling card. We put it online. It was Jimmy skating through San Francisco telling the story of his grandfather that had inspired, you know, this film we wanted to make. And we started getting emails from people all over the, the world actually saying, you know, these same things are happening in our cities. We're seeing our cities change and become unrecognizable. That was the first time I think that I realized, oh, this is bigger than San Francisco. And so we also got emails from people closer to home in the Bay Area saying, you know, how can we help make this movie? And so given that we had never done anything on a large scale, it had just been our ragtag productions with friends and family and whoever we could sort of, you know, uh, give a pair of headphones to and a microphone. It was like we all learned to make a movie together with these these people who reached out and became our film family. And so it got bigger and bigger, but for a long time it was a small group of people we called our long shot family. That was the name of our collective because it felt like it was going to be a long shot to get this movie made. Well, nothing about the film seems ragtag, including the beauty of its production. Just gorgeous lighting and dreamlike sequences and and the acting is superb jimmy this story is based on your family's victorian home Mm -hmm. would you talk about the significance of the house itself to the story Mm. well the house is everything to the story the house is what what draws me to the city in the first place. You know, the house is, was for a very long time the only thing, you know, driving me to stay there for, for reasons being the only place where I've had my full family sort of together, you know, and since we lost that house, I haven't had that 
family feeling. It's also my grandpa's legacy. He owned several properties in the Fillmore. So it represents, you know, black ownership. It represents my grandpa, who was my idol. I thought he was Superman mm. growing up. So it just, it represents, that. that's what it represents for me. Most importantly, just a family. Many people did come from the South. That was sort of, you know, the migration um, to San Francisco yeah. for a lot of African-Americans who worked in the shipyards during the war. And that's when the Fillmore area of San Francisco became known as Harlem of the West. Yeah, I was hoping you would talk more about that now because this was such a vibrant and interesting community, Harlem of the West. Why don't more Americans know about it? Well, why well, don't more San Franciscans yeah, know that, about it? It's also a question, say, yeah, you know, yeah. we had is like you you grew up, I think we're all deeply aware of when you grew up in San Francisco, the music that came out of the 60s, Jefferson Airplane and Janis Joplin, uh, the films that came out of San Francisco from noir films to, you know, um, Coppola's movies in, in the 60s and 70s and so on. But you're not taught necessarily about the Harlem of the West, about the jazz scene that took place in San Francisco, um, and about many of the important figures in that, like Charles Sullivan. And so for us, I think, too, this was sort of an exploration into a part of San Francisco's past that, that isn't always discussed. And it's part of why we felt like it was important to make this movie is because there are waves of people coming to San Francisco right now who don't know very much about the battles that were fought to create San Francisco values, to create a place that was not only a hub for artists, but for people who felt like they couldn't fit where they came from. They arrived at the gates of San Francisco to be fully themselves, you know, all these waves of people. And I think to understand that history uh, is to understand why we believe it's so important to fight for San Francisco. It's not just nostalgia. It's not just wanting to hold on to an idea of, of what it was like when we grew up there, but it's that these values were, were fought. You know, even people like Danny Glover, who's in our film, Danny Glover was an activist before he was a world-famous actor. He grew up in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury. He lived all over Hunter's Point. He lived in basically every location that's in our film. He was working in city government for six years. He was involved in the famous strikes at SF State in the late 60s. He was, you know, in the streets of San Francisco fighting to make San Francisco the place that we grew up in. So he and many others are, I think, people when you grow up there you look up to, and so when people come and they don't know that and they say, well, cities are always changing. This is just part of the change, natural change. It doesn't feel very natural to us. Mm. You mentioned Danny Glover, who portrays the grandfather of Jimmy's best friend in the film, Mont. And we've already established this is your first feature-length film. So how did you land Danny Glover to play <laughs> such mm. an important role, an artist of his stature in right. a first-time film? Jimmy. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's always our dream to get him, but uh, the the producers and everybody have been trying to get into contact with him. He was like possible to reach for a while, and um, you know, next thing you know, I'm walking home from the gym and I get a call. <laughs> I get a call. I pick up the phone. He's like, "Hey, it's Danny." It's like everybody knows Danny Glover's voice. It's like, how could you not know that? So I'm like, "He's like, it's Danny, Danny Glover." I'm like. Yeah, I know. of course I know it's Danny Glover. Like, what's up, man? He's just like eating food. Like, you could just hear him chewing and, you know, licking <laughs> his fingers and whatever. 
we just start talking. We don't even talk about the movie at all. We were just were literally just talking about just the the history of the film work. She grew up there, and he was just you know telling me about stories of him and the film work and seeing the Temptations live and whatever. And I was just talking about myself growing up. You know, you know, to him, I'm a baby. He always calls me that. But so you know, I was telling him my experience as well. You know, which is nothing compared to you know his. But so yeah, we just sort of had that conversation and. Um, I think us us talking about that he he got to gauge that how much I love San Francisco, which is what I feel like why he came onto this project is because he saw two people that love the city like he did. I don't even want to say like he did. He probably you know he's done so much more for the city than well, than I could ever. But, but you know, clearly yeah. he was not in it for mm-hmm. the money. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. You have to be crazy to join this movie for the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You cast childhood friends and mm. other locals for the street corner crew mm-hmm. that appears in the film. And with one young man in that group, we see his pain in keeping up the tough facade. Mm-hmm. He's really very tender hearted. How would you describe the character of Kofi? Well, when we were growing up in San Francisco, like Jimmy said earlier, I think one of the things that was felt unique about our friendship was that we could be vulnerable with each other and we could open up to each other, talk about things that we didn't feel, you know, maybe comfortable talking about with other friends. And in doing that, when some friends would come around us uh, and be just, you know, us three or four hanging out, they would also get in touch with that vulnerability, I think, and feel more encouraged to, to be that way. But then they'd get back in a different group and all of a sudden they'd be putting on, like you said, that facade again. And, you know, um, I think for us, watching people struggle with that is a hard thing when you're growing up. And, and there are certain scenes in the film that come directly from incidents that happened to friends of ours. And we wanted to try to channel that and show that because one of the themes of the movie and it's interesting it's it's something that i don't think we actually explicitly discussed in making it but it is something that people have come up to us time and time again and and wanted to talk about is you know men being vulnerable and sensitive and and the word that jonathan majors who plays jimmy's best friend mont in the film uses is gentle Mm -hmm. and i think that we don't always see men get to do that and you know when you grow up with images of, of men being one thing being tough hard, always confident, you know, hyper-masculine. It's hard if you feel that there are parts of you that don't fully relate to that. And so I think we wanted to create characters that felt like the people who we grew up with who could in one sense be be tough, but in another sense be um, soft and gentle. And, and I think that's a part of, of this film. We'll return to my conversation with director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fails about their film The Last Black Man in San Francisco after his short break. This is WABE Atlanta. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with director Joe Talbot and actor Jimmy Fails about their critically acclaimed film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. We've been talking about friendship and how your friendship informs so much of the story that's on screen. Jimmy, it is your grandpa's story, your family saga, this intergenerational story about home and belonging and community. It seems like there are many opportunities for life and art to blur or to have blurred for you. Were there times in the making of the film when you thought, wait, this this is fiction, this is art, or, or did it feel like a documentary? No, I don't think it ever felt like a documentary because we're storytellers and we have imaginations. We try to keep our imagination as young as possible without being naive to a lot of things. But um, I think it just, it, everything was emotionally true. And that's one of the things that Jonathan taught me anyways. Like it has to be true, period, for any role. It's also personal for me, so it wasn't very hard for it to do that. So um, I think it was hard to even blur the lines through what was fictional and what was not a lot of the time, but because it all felt true. Your character has mm-hmm. your name. Yes. Was that surreal? I don't know if surreal is the word, but it was interesting to feel like there were certain incidents that did happen, some of which Jimmy was present for in his life, it being inspired by that, and some of which you know were things that I saw or that I was present for. There is a weird feeling. I'd step back sometimes just looking at Jimmy and looking at certain scenes, and it's like watching this heightened version of what was reality at one point with the camera now and costume and 50 people running around tending to all the little details makeup and everything but even in those moments where it was like watching you know this heightened I want to say reenactment but it isn't a reenactment because again like Jimmy said it's it then grew in our imaginations taking from the kind of kernel of what inspired it and then would change you know but it there were times where it felt strange to watch unfold you know Yeah, foundational, I guess. The film has been compared to Armistead Mopin's Mm. Tales of the City, which is his own love letter and quirky account, first in newspaper columns Mm -hmm. and then as books and a movie. Where do you think those comparisons come from? I think there's a sort of there's a love of San Francisco and all of its wonderful eccentricities and and the great characters that make up San Francisco. You know, I think someone yesterday wrote about how the movie lived close to in this writer's heart, 
Harold and Maude and Petulia. Oh. I appreciate that as someone that loves both of those films <laughs> in different ways. You know, obviously there's a romantic love between Harold and Maude in that film, but there's also a great friendship that forms from two sort of uh, wonderfully unique, different individuals. And I think that's part of how we, you know, thought about this film with Jimmy and Mott, both feeling quintessentially San Francisco and yet very different. And Harold DeMott actually is also shot in the Bay Area, which I think people don't always realize because it's sort of a foggy, gothic, almost uh, English-like depiction of the Bay. But watching that movie was really inspiring because I think we wanted to also make this love letter to our city that showed a different side of the city than than most people might be familiar with watching some of the more classic San Francisco films. And you achieved that so beautifully because there is tremendous character to the Fillmore as it's presented and the Fillmore in Jimmy's memory, I mean, that lives in Jimmy's memory, in his father's memory. Yet one thing I admired is you don't see the Transamerica building. You don't see that, you know, brilliant blue sky like in the postcards Mm. with uh, the skyline and the city on the bay. The most that one sees is the Golden Gate Bridge. And I think that in itself was so powerful. Yeah. Well, we wanted yeah, we wanted to show the side of the city that no one sees cuz that's the side of the city that we saw when we were growing up. So it only made sense. It's like we weren't hanging out at the Transamerica building, you know, <laughs> like we weren't. That's not what we were doing. So Of course, um, and and now um you know there are so many news stories. I mean, I think it was just 2 weeks ago it yeah. came out San Francisco is the most expensive city in the United States. Right. Not that we should feel sorry for them, but wealthy people can't afford to live in San Francisco anymore. Mm-hmm. So this film seems all the more important now. Yeah. Well, there were these series of, of articles that did come out, actually, yeah, like you said, right before the film, from national publications, saying, you know, some version of San Francisco's gone to the dogs and oh, the city that, you know, you left your heart in now breaks your heart, so on. And I think there was a, a you know, a feeling of many San Franciscans seeing those articles got upset because there are people that are fighting for San Francisco every day, just like there are people fighting here and many other cities across the United States to stay. And there's a line in the film that often gets quoted back to us that I think encapsulated that frustration that natives feel when they hear people outside dissing their cities. And that's when Jimmy's on the bus. He's across from... Thor Birch in a brief cameo and she's complaining about the city she's an, a new resident and um, Jimmy asks her if she loves the city and she sort of shrugs and he says you don't get to hate it unless you love it and that feeling I think is something we've all felt you know we can air our frustrations about San Francisco because we spent our whole lives bleeding for it fighting for it and I think but when other people come in and they're just complaining. It seems if, superficial. Yeah, it almost feels like they're treating it like a playground. And for us, it's our home. Yeah, you have the emotional investment. Therefore, 
you are entitled to feel ambivalent. I was hoping you might talk about the music. All of the music used in the film is gorgeous. It's effective. Let's hear a little bit of this. Hey, hey, yeah. song is sort of uh, it's emblematic of the, the collaboration that went into this film oh. um, you know it's a song that I'll get into sort of the history of that song in San Francisco in a moment but just in terms of how it came to be Mont uh, Jonathan Majors who plays him is always playing music on set Van Morrison, others, you know, music he thought his character would be listening to. Otis? He, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. And so he was playing one day this, this musician, Daniel Herskadal, who's a tubist, Norwegian tubist. And it sounded to me like foghorns. And so I said, oh, my God, what is that? And he told me it was. And when I wrote Daniel Herskadal. I said, can you do this version of the old Scott McKenzie song, Yeah, Flowers in Your Hair, for the film? And so he, he wrote that. He came up with that sort of uh, his own version of it to sound like the foghorns in Hunter's Point because Hunter's Point, where much of the film takes place, is on the water, and you hear the foghorns and the seagulls. And, um, and then, you know, there's a singer who has a golden voice. He's famous in the Bay Area named Mike Marshall. He sang I Got Five on it, which, of course, everyone around my age knows and grew up listening to. And so we brought in Mike Marshall to to sing uh, on the song. And Emil, our composer, then wrote the organ that you hear. There's these sort of siren-like backing vocals that come in just after the clip we heard. And so it felt like all these different people had their hands in this song, and that's kind of what the process was like. But that song itself also has a weird history in San Francisco because it was actually written at first as a way to calm the sort of local authorities' anxieties about all these waves of kids descending on San Francisco and the Bay Area for Monterey Pop. Uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas wrote the song. And so, you know, growing up, my parents who raised me in all that old music from the 60s always thought of that song as very corny because it was sort of like faux hippie pop. Yeah, handing out flowers. <laughs> right. It was sort of not not exactly like one of the more beloved ballads, but I think over time it's sort of taken on a, a different place in our hearts because it does it still come from that period that people have romantic memories of. Mm -hmm. And yet we wanted to put it now in the mouth of an artist who can't afford to live in San Francisco 
you know, in those days, Jeff Airplane, Grateful Dead were living in these Victorian mansions in the hate. And now many of the musicians that live there, it feels like they're sleeping in front of those mansions. Well, the music is very powerful. And yet another beautiful aspect of this movie. Jimmy Fails, Joe Talbot, this has just been wonderful. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for having us. All across the nation, such a strange vibration, people in motion. There's a whole generation with a new explanation. People in motion, people in motion for those who come to San Francisco. Summertime. director Joe Talbot, and actor Jimmy Fails. Their outstanding film is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. You can stream it on Amazon Prime. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll learn about a month-long celebration of Shakespeare's April birthday with actors and writers discussing the role of the bard in the 21st century. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.